Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. And if you have, every family has hurts and wounds, and usually um, it can create conflict and frictions and annoyances. It can also turn to rage and, and hatred and even to the point where you just don't talk to each other anymore. And everybody wants their situations to be different, but maybe you have no idea how to do that, how to even start. My guest is... Um, written a book on that called Healing Family Relationships, A Guide to Peace and Reconciliation. His name is Rob Reno, and he um, uh, is my guest for this half hour. Rob, welcome. Boy, thanks, Bill. Looking forward to talking with you. Yeah, I was going to read all your fancy credits, but I thought let's just get to the material because we have so many questions we want to ask you about this because I think this is uh, in so many families, and it's so heartbreaking. Yeah, well, this is conversation is only for messed up families with sin and conflicts and problems. So if you're a perfect family, you can find another half an hour. But, uh, you know, my wife and I, we're coming up on 28 years of marriage. We've got seven children. Our eldest two are married and off the payroll. We just welcomed our first granddaughter. So we've got this big family with you know, lots of happiness and lots of joy and, and major problems. Like not, not a day goes by where the, the intensity of our relationships don't bring out some sort of junk in somebody's heart or, or mm. behavior. And we have to navigate through some hurt. Yeah. Why is it so hard to have peace in the home? Well, I think it's because that God created the family as the foundation of all of civilization, all of human life, all places, all times. And so uh, the family gets the, the vast majority of the spiritual attack that comes against us. I mean, yeah, we deal with some spiritual battles at, at work or uh, in the community or things like that. But, man, the, the spiritual attack that comes against the marriage relationship, sibling relationship, relationships between parents and their kids, um, that's that's really where our faith is, is lived out. Mm-hmm. Rob, can you kind of uh, pull the curtain back a little bit on your f- personal family? Can you give us a little background on, on, on your own family? Yeah, well, I didn't come from uh, this big Christian family. You know, when I was born, neither one of my parents were Christians. And my mother was my father's fourth wife. My father was my mother's second husband. And so not surprisingly, a few short years into their marriage, things were falling apart. And it was when I was a little baby, I was three months old. God worked a miracle in my mom's life, brought her to faith in Christ, and she was the the first Christian in our family. So I grew up with a Christian mom and an atheist dad. And then my parents got divorced when I was 15. And turns out that my dad, he traveled for business Monday through Thursday each week. And turns out he had mistresses in different cities where he was traveling. And he basically came to my mom and said, I want to keep my mistresses and stay married to you. Mm. Like he actually, he actually said this. And my, my mom was not cool with that, uh, plan. Um, and my parents divorced when I was 15. And you know, it was my, my dad's bad behavior, my parents divorced. That was like the big wound and trauma of my life. 
And it, it took God a lot of years of bringing me to a place of what does it even mean to forgive my dad? I mean, let alone like try to reconcile the relationship with him. Mm-hmm. Rob Reno is my guest. He's written a book called Healing Family Relationships, A Guide to Peace and Reconciliation. Um, Rob, forgiveness, of course, is pretty critical for any family situation. But do you think that uh, some of the modern teaching on forgiveness is maybe a little superficial and maybe not helpful? Yeah, I absolutely do. And I'll go back to my dad's example. So I'm a teenage boy. You find out dad has behaved like this. I had some Christian friends who said, well, Rob, you need to forgive him. And that's good advice, certainly, I guess. But it felt superficial, felt very Sunday schooly. It, it felt like, and nobody meant it that way, but it felt like what they were saying is, you know, you've got this hatred, anger, and bitterness in in your heart, you know, wherever that is, and you're just supposed to go down there, and these are little light switches. You just turn off your hatred, your anger, your bitterness, give it to Jesus, and, and you're good to go. Well, I think if, if feelings like that were just little light switches, we would all turn them off. Um, and people also buy into this time heals all wounds lie. That's a phrase you hear out in the culture, time heals all wounds. And that is absolutely not true. I mean, if I take a knife and I give my, you know, big chop on my arm or something like that, and I say, well, I'll just give that time. Bad plan. (laughs) I'm bleeding out. I'm getting infected. I'm getting gangrene. Now, it is true that God can heal our heart wounds and our family wounds over time. That's not true. But it's not time that's doing it. Uh, It's God through a very intentional process of forgiveness. Rob, let's talk about the family that does not deal with hurts and conflicts in any kind of direct way. They just maybe sweep it under the rug. They ignore the problems. Oh, talk about why they should be concerned about that and how they can break out of that very unhealthy pattern. Yeah, well, you used the classic phrase there, right? Sweep it under the rug. So let's think about that uh, picture. So imagine we've got a big room, let's say a wood floor, and there's a rug in the middle. And every evening we come in to clean, so we sweep the dust from around the room under the rug. Well, that's fine for a day or a week or something like that. But after a month or a year or 10 years, that rug is like five inches off the ground with all the junk that's been swept under it. And and a lot of families work like that. And so what happens is someone steps on the rug, all the past junk blows out. We have this big, huge fight. We panic and we sweep it all under the rug again. And we wait till the next big family blow up. Now, here's the problem. You're listening and you're like, man, that's my family. We, we just go from blow up to blow up. We don't actually talk about anything. We don't actually take responsibility for things and ask forgiveness for things and extend forgiveness. Here's one of the challenges. The first person who says, hey, I think we've got a lot of junk under that rug, and I think we ought to talk about it to see if we can work through it. A lot of times that person is accused of being like the bad one. That person's accused of like airing the family's dirty laundry or whatever. So just be prepared if God is kind of calling you to help your family, that that, that he's calling you to care enough about your family relationships to try to face into some of these things. Just just be prepared that um, some people may not appreciate you doing that. Mm Mm-hmm. Rob Reno is my guest. His book is Healing Family Relationships, A Guide to Peace and Reconciliation. Um, Rob, I know probably part of any healing process would require you to sort of look at past hurts, but what about the person who says, ah, I don't want to look at any past traumas, not interested? 
Well, for a lot of us, there's wounds and hurts back there. There's a reason why we don't go back and deal with them because it's traumatic and painful to do so. But the problem is, is that when we have past hurts and wounds, and and we all do, none of us were raised by Jesus. So we all have Hmm. parents and siblings who who hurt us growing up. The problem is, is that uh, unforgiven hurts are like a ball and chain around our life right now. Hebrews 12, 15 says, see to it that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and to defile many. So God's using like an agricultural illustration there, right? A a Mm -hmm. seed of hurt gets planted. If a seed of hurt gets planted and you walk away and ignore it, that seed is going to grow roots. Those roots are going to grow up. And the scripture there says they're going to go up to cause trouble and they're going to defile many. In other words, it's going to mess up other people in your life too. So, um, uh, if you've got those issues and, or you've got those hurts, either present or like you said, past, you know, God wants to bring freedom to your life. God doesn't want, you know, I had to deal with this growing up. I, I didn't want my dad's bad behavior to be a ball and chain around my life. I didn't want his bad behavior to be driving anger and bitterness in my life. Rob, I know there's going to be a conflict in homes. I think that's the way humans operate around each other. There's always going to be something. But what about when the conflict is tied to spiritual warfare or spiritual attack? How, how do we fight in the spiritual realm for peace in our homes? Well, Amy and I have to navigate that pretty frequently just as, as husband and wife, that we'll be in a conflict or we'll be tense with each other or having an argument or fighting. And one of us at some point in the argument says, hey, you know what? I feel like we are uh, fighting each other here, and we have to recognize that this is like a spiritual attack against our marriage. This is an attack from the outside, and we have to make a choice that are we going to fight the outside force together, or are we going to keep fighting uh, each other? And once that clicks in, like then we're ready to to, to unify. You know, it's, it's funny. The, the one area of prayer, this will be a conversation for another day. Maybe we, we dig into our visionary marriage book, but first 13 years of our marriage, we never prayed together. Hard. I mean, just dinner time and things like that. Um, but we, I didn't have any kind of spiritual con- leadership or care for my wife. I was a pastor, so I was focused on everybody else at church and neglecting her spiritually. Um, but we began, began a prayer life together at the 13-year mark. And the one area that was at, we've actually gotten pretty good is praying in the middle of conflict. So we're arguing, we're having a fight about Lord knows what. And one person says, I think we should pray. And <laughs> I love it. Just, I love it. It's, it's the worst because we're just angry and we're hard hearted. <laughs> and in order to pray, we have to lower the guard of our heart. We have to come over. And I've, there's been so many times one of us just prays, Lord, help us. And three words out of our mouth, the Holy Spirit rushes in, softens my heart to her, softens her heart to me, you know, and gives us an exit ramp off this thing we've been fighting about. Mm-hmm. When you're in the middle of an argument with Amy, do you ever sit and think to yourself, what do I hope the outcome to be? Um, well, if I'm Is thinking it you want clearly, your way and sure. she wants her way? Uh, yeah, because, I mean, obviously, if, if Amy and I are in a argument together, the reason is because something she did. Right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm glad I'm glad you laughed at that. Oh, yeah, I laughed hard at that. when I say that. Yeah. Yes. Um, so so, of course, on my side, it's well, she said this or she had this tone of voice or she made that decision. 
And, and one of the really powerful things that Jesus teaches us to do in one of the chapters in the book is kind of called Healing Through Prayer, Healing Family Relationships Through Prayer. But the prayer is asking God to show you your contribution to the problem. Mm, so, like man, I can, see, I can see her contribution plain as day. <laughs> I can detail it for you. Yeah. But, but maybe my part's not so clear. So I've got to ask God to show that to me. Yeah. Take a break. Rob Renau is our guest. His book is Healing Family Relationships, a guide to peace and reconciliation. I've got a bunch of questions for Rob when we come back, but I'm guessing you might have one too. And if you have one, let me know. I'll ask it on your behalf. You can, of course, remain anonymous. The number is with author Rob Reno. He and his wife Amy launched Visionary Family Ministries, whose mission is to build the church through a global reformation of family discipleship. The book we're talking about today is Healing Family Relationships, A Guide to Peace and Reconciliation. I love what you were saying about halfway through an argument with your wife, you would stop and start praying. I'd love for you to say more, Rob, if you would, about prayer. And I know that's a central part uh, bringing healing to any family relationship. But is there any specific prayer strategies we can use if we're if we're looking for reconciliation, seeking it? Yeah, absolutely. It's a great question. You know, I think for me, what happens is when I'm in a conflict uh, or struggling with a family relationship, you know, I tell myself that I should pray about that. Right. The Lord says, boy, you really prompts me. You really need to pray about this. And me having the feeling I should pray about that checks a box for me that I actually prayed about it. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? Oh, yeah. Like, I, I had a good intention to pray. And so therefore, I must have prayed. But actually, I never really did pray. I never really did go to the Lord and ask for the Holy Spirit to work a miracle of healing and reconciliation in that relationship. Because, you know, the, even on the daily conflicts between siblings and or, or whether this is some longstanding thing in your family, if, if Amy and I have learned anything in our 28 years together, it's that our good intentions and our willpower are, are just not going to get us anywhere because we have those. We, we both have good intentions. We mean well, okay, and and we have willpower. We're trying. I'm trying to be a – you know, better husband. She's trying to be a better wife, but we need the supernatural power of God to change who we are. Like I need him to actually change my character, not not just like willpower myself to somehow be better. So even that basic step, whether it's your relationship with a parent, spouse, sibling, or a child, even that basic step of just going to the Lord each day, even 15 seconds Lord, I'm burdened for this relationship with my son. I know things aren't good between us. I I don't have any magic formula for fixing it. Would you please soften my heart toward him, soften his heart toward me, and and work a miracle of healing here? Even Mm. that simple, straightforward prayer is the place to start. I love those words, soften heart. Would you do that? That's a great prayer. So I'm still a little stuck. Earlier on in the um, discussion we've been having, you mentioned 15-year-old Rob and his 
difficulty with his dad and the heartbreak over that. And because you wrote a book on healing family relationships, was there uh, a miracle of healing in your relationship with your dad? There was, um, but it was a very long time in coming. The miracle started just kind of in my own heart. My youth pastor, who was very uh, influential uh, in my life, Ken Geis, who actually pastored in the Twin Cities for a long time. I know Ken Geis. Do you really? Yes. He was my youth pastor in Connecticut. You're kidding. Yep. Okay. Great guy, by um, the way. Yeah, I love Ken, and I'm so grateful for his, his impact in my life and uh, I know he was at Wooddale for uh, uh, a long time, and I think another church uh, up there as well. But, you know, he really walked me through what it meant to choose to forgive my dad. And people get hung up on forgiveness because their their emotions are not their friends. See, I didn't feel like forgiving him. He didn't ask for forgiveness. He didn't deserve forgiveness. And none of those. So there was a lot of emotional barriers, but but I actually had to get out a piece of paper, and up at the top of the paper I wrote, it hurt me when, dot, 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 it hurt me when, dot, 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 and then listed very specific and concrete things that had happened that had hurt me. And then I, I gritted my teeth, and I prayed, and I, I said, Lord, you know, you, you say forgive as the Lord forgave you. Uh, I don't want to forgive my dad. I don't. Uh, he doesn't deserve forgiveness, and I want that noted in the minutes of my prayer here. But um, I, I choose to forgive him for this. I choose to forgive him for that. I choose to forgive him for this. And it was this first step of simply choosing obedience. Now, that didn't change my heart or my attitude or anything at that moment. I just had to make a choice to forgive him. And then I entered phase two. Phase two of forgiveness was this daily prayer. God, okay, I've chosen to forgive my dad, but I can't get rid of the hatred, anger, and bitterness that I have for him. You've got to change my heart. You've got to drain the swamp of all that stuff in, in my heart. And that was, that was six years. Six years of asking God to do that until there was a, a really significant breakthrough. And and God shifted my attitude toward my dad from anger to compassion. Um, my father, and there's all sorts of things I could tell you, My his, his mother died in childbirth with him in 1918. His father wouldn't take him. He was adopted by an atheist who taught him not to believe in God. He spent his whole life looking for women to love him. He, uh, he died with a picture of his mother. At, at, he was 90 years old, died with a picture of his mother on his dresser. Mm. And uh, it was three weeks Thanks before he died. Mm-hmm. Three weeks before he died, God did a miracle in his life, brought him to repentance of his sins, faith in Christ. He was radically converted. I've wow. never seen a greater miracle in my life than the conversion of my 90-year-old dad. And um, it was after that that the Lord, he came to us and asked forgiveness for what he had done and uh, we had an unbelievable three days together before he went home oh. uh, to be with the Lord. God is good all the time, Rob. Um, what about a situation where there's a family member that would really love to get some healing, maybe some reconciliation, get the the good vibrations back into the relationship, but there's only one family member that's willing to do it? Does it always take two to heal, or are there things that one person can do? a great question. Um, it takes one for now. Uh, it only takes one to forgive. In other words, by the grace of God, the Lord led me to complete forgiveness of my dad. I, I no longer had hatred, bitterness, and resentment toward him, but I didn't. we didn't have a reconciled relationship. Those are two totally separate things, and that's where people get very confused. They mm-hmm. think that forgiveness means reconciliation, and, and it doesn't. God, God wants to take you 
completely through the forgiveness process. So you have no more hatred, bitterness, or anger toward this person so that you are then ready for reconciliation if it's possible. You know, Romans uh, chapter 12, you know, says live at peace with all as far as it depends on you. You know, if possible, live at peace with all as far as it depends on you. Well, what does that mean? If possible, it might not be possible. Your brother might not want to live at peace with you. Mm-hmm. It, it, you can't live at peace with someone if they're a toxic, abusive person. The emphasis there is if the relationship's broken, don't let that be because of you. Don't let that be because of you. Mm-hmm. That brings me to my next thought is if you have a, a family member that is kind of toxic, and I, I don't love that word, but it's the one that's coming to mind right now and you create some distance between yourself and that family member, is that a unloving position? Is that is that a, sending a message saying, it looks like we're just going to be apart, we're going to be distant, and that's, that's the way it's going to be? Those situations are super sad when, I mean, you're asking a question about boundaries, right? When is yeah. it appropriate and godly to put up boundaries? And we can pick our word, right? Toxic, mean-spirited, abusive, whatever word you want to choose. Um, And those family situations are incredibly painful, but sometimes you actually do have to seek healing through boundaries. You know, forgiving someone does not mean availing yourself to be abused by them in a continual way. That's not what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is not a, a, a doormat. I think the best illustration of this in scriptures with Joseph, Joseph is horrifically abused by his brothers right? Mm-hmm. Nearly murdered, but sold into slavery. So see, we, we see these stories in the Bible, these histories in the Bible, and we know, oh, Bible story, you know, whatever. This, these are real people and real histories. I mean, this was a situation of horrendous physical abuse from a family, right? Now, we know that God was in it, and God is sending Joseph to save the world from famine and save his family and all those things. Um, but you remember the history that Joseph, uh, the brothers come down to Egypt to get food. And as soon as Joseph sees his brothers, as soon as they come into his courtroom or whatever, he says, guys, it's me. It's Joseph. It's your brother. I've missed you. I'm so glad you're back. We can be friends again. No, that's not what he does. These people were horrible abusers and he has a boundary up with them and he's not going to let his boundary down until he sees two things. Number one, are they repentant? And the first time he cries in the other room is when he hears them saying, and this is happening to us because of the guilt of what we did to Joseph. He hears the sorrow in their hearts. But it's not enough for abusers to be sorry. They have to be changed people, mm-hmm. right? So he sets up the test. Are they going to sell out Benjamin to save their hides? And so that when, he, when they say, no, no, we are willing to lay down our lives to save our little brother, then Joseph cries again enters the room and reveals himself mm, to them. So, so good. people ask, when should I come back into relationship with family when you see repentance and changed yeah. behavior? Rob, thank you so much for doing the show. It's been an absolute delight meeting you. I like your book, and I like you. Well, I appreciate you talking to me about this important subject. Thanks. You bet. Thanks. We'll take a break, and we'll come back. Dr. Ann Bradley will be with us. Be right back. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. 
What's for dinner? It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Hey, Rosie, we have Ann Bradley on. She's my favorite. <laughs> I know. She's getting quite a fan base, too. Did I you know. know I'm kind of I kind of fangirl on her. You yeah. Know, seriously, I, I look at the economy going, oh, I wonder what Ann's going to say about I this. I wonder I what she's going to say about this. There's a group that have assembled outside the studio. They don't realize <laughs> she's not here. She's at her home. Well, and maybe she's on the phone. Maybe someday we can, oh, she can great. arrange to be in Minnesota. That'd be great. Dr. Ann Bradley is an economist. She is an author, a professor, and a regular now on the show. I'm so glad to have you with me, Ann. Thanks for being here. Hi, Bill and Rosie. Thank you for having me, as always. Yeah. So let's just be upfront about the economy right now. I think there's an exhausted majority of people. There, are, uh, Americans are so frustrated with the economy and all the gloomy news we're getting all the time. Let's start there. What's your response to that? Yeah. I mean, I think that they are right to feel a little exhausted by this. Um, we've been just dealing with sluggishness and crises in a variety of forms for a long time now. Um, And the pendulum in terms of just the general economy has just been wild all over the place. Prior to COVID, it was kind of smooth sailing. The economy was doing really well. Unemployment, especially for minority groups, was the lowest it had ever been. Then the economy comes to a complete halt, basically. We have wild swings in GDP in 2020. And it recovered. And so, okay, we think things maybe are going to recover quickly, but you can't get that. It's like a boomerang. You can't get those wild fluctuations as well as a global pandemic with global lockdowns without suffering some problems. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think that part of it, Bill, is just what we went through. Unprecedented. Lots of people didn't know what to do. And I don't mean just ordinary people. We didn't know what to do. But I don't think government officials knew what to do. That includes the Fed. That includes the president, that includes policymakers. And so we've had a lot of kind of erratic policy decision-making in that time, including lots of stimulus spending. We've had port closures. We've had supply chain issues. We have a war in the Ukraine. And all of that comes pounding down on the livelihoods of ordinary Americans. And so I think you're right to say exhaustion. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think we're ready for some good news. The question is, are we going to get it? And we certainly can talk about that more. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're wrestling with inflation, which I feel like that's all you and I talk about right now because it's just not going away. Um, The CPI, the Consumer Price Index, which is one of the more typical ways we measure year-to-year inflation, is up 8.6%. That was the last... Uh, reports. We'll get another report soon. And so, you know, it's just Americans need a break because inflation is a tax. It acts as a tax on all of us. Mm -hmm. It decreases our spending power. And so things like filling up your car, going to work, paying the daycare bill, getting groceries on the table, things that two years ago we took for granted because the economy was chugging along so nicely are now much harder. And we need an end. We need an end in sight. And so I think that this is going to affect midterm elections. It's going to affect how Americans view the role of politicians. So we can go in any one of those directions you want. But um, there's lots to talk about, lots to be worried about. Yeah. You had mentioned um, an inflation percentage. I think you said 8.6 or something. When I hear those numbers, are they fairly accurate? Because sometimes I'll hear, well, inflation is 8.6, but in real calculation, it's 31.2%. I'm going, ah, mm-hmm. what do I believe? And and how do I put my arms around those numbers? Because sometimes that's all I have. Yes. 
I think this is, you know, and I have to say to you, Bill, that in normal times, if I'm trying to talk to my students about inflation, how we measure it, they're asleep. I mean, asleep. This is like a sleeping pill, right? <laughs> they're not interested. But now everybody wants to know how we do this, how we measure it. What does it mean? So I think what we, we have to say here is that there's a couple of different methods for measuring inflation. And what I encourage people to do is, is look at all of them. The CPI is the most well-known. It's the easiest. Um, the Fed uses a slightly different one. And what we're trying to do there is we take what we call a basket or a bundle of goods. And we want to use a bundle that applies to most people. So we're not going to use the bundle that Elon Musk and Bill Gates use because they're buying planes and they're buying Lamborghinis and we're not. So adding the, that into our basket doesn't make a lot of sense. So when economists think about the basket, food, household items, shelter, all these types of things that are typical for everyone's use. So that's what we're measuring. And we can look year to year. We can also look month to month. And so when inflation is rising the way it is and has been persistent the way it is in the American economy, we, we tend to pay attention as well to the month to month inflation. So from April to May, for example, it rose 1%. That's a lot in a month. And that's the fastest pace since 1981. So the overall inflation rate, that basket of goods, is 8.6% more expensive right mm -hmm. now than it was at the same time last year. But it, if, if you get 1% inflation per month, you have to stop that because that is going to accumulate and it's going to make things difficult. So that's how you get from zero, per, you know, 2% or 3% to 8.6%, which yeah. is where we are now. Okay. Well, I just scared a listener because I threw out that random percentage of 31.2%. I was just throwing out that <laughs> number. Scare people. Yeah, I didn't mean to scare people, so I take that back. But sometimes you hear percentages, but that's not the true reality. And so I was just curious about that. Another question is shrinking products, the shrinkflation. Is that yeah. included in the inflation calculations? Yeah, so that we're just looking at the prices. Yeah. We're not looking necessarily. Now, it depends on what it is, but... Um, I've got an example you know, for you. Yes, please. Okay, uh, a box of 110 Kleenex used to cost $1.19. Now, the price is the same, but the quantity has decreased to 84 Right. So the, the shrinkflation is just trying to... I mean, because what are the, what are the, the retailers, what are they trying to do? They're trying not to raise the price for the consumer. But what they're really doing is giving us less. Right. And so th th it's, you know, it's the same thing. It's still a price increase. It just doesn't look like that when you scan it at the register. Right. But you're, you're paying a dollar 19 for what was your example? 110. 110 and now you're getting Kleenex. 85. Or, now you're getting 84. Yeah, mm -hmm. Exactly. And so th it's just smaller sizes at the same price is really a higher price. And so it's it, the effect for the consumer is exactly the same, which is the, what we don't want. And by the way, I just have to say one thing about that. That's not costless either because it means that manufacturers are now repackaging things, re, mm -hmm. re you know, kind of their new sizes and uh, new boxes and all these types of things. So this is just hard all the way around. So I wanted, I'm trying to say here is inflation is bad for everybody in the economy. It's not just bad for consumers. It's bad for manufacturers. It's bad for retailers because it disrupts the, our, the patterns of our consumption. Mm -hmm. And so when we buy less from them, they are hurt too. When they have to pass along higher 
consumer prices to us because their input prices are more expensive. That's bad for them. It's bad for their workers. It's bad for everybody. So it's not even just a consumer phenomena. It's an everybody phenomena. Mm-hmm. When I look at some of the things going on with travel, it seems to be was at a, a peak performance over the 4th of July in terms of people wanting to move, although travel was delayed often because of airlines. But are retailers, are they hiring or are they scaling back? Are they worrying about a, a slowdown or a recession? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so this is what is unique about the economy we're living in when we compare it to the economy of the 1970s. There's been a lot of chatter about, you know, are we reliving the 70s? And I think in some ways we are. If we look at uh, um, inflation, um, we are seeing some of the same pressures that the 1970s economy saw. But right now it's not as bad um, as what we saw back then. The difference is the labor market. So the labor market there's a lot of demand for workers, especially in kind of the retail sector. And there's just, this is where the economy today is very different from the economy of the 1970s, where you could not get a job. Now people are desperate to hire you. I think in the past year, Amazon has done $3,000 hiring bonuses, Walmart. I don't know if this is still on the table, but I know they instituted this within the last year that they will pay for your college tuition. Now, there's certain caveats. You probably have to work a certain number of hours a week. But this is to try to get people in the door to work there. Mm -hmm. And so this is a very different type of economy. I think some of that has been fostered by the teleworking that was kind of imposed by the lockdown. So people, lots of people had to figure out how to work at home. And now lots of people don't want to go back to the office. That is hard for retailers because you can't have somebody ring up customers from home. You need somebody in the building. Now, some sales have, you know, have transitioned to online. That was happening well before the pandemic. So in some ways, we're moving to fewer cashiers in general. If you look at job vulnerability, cashiers, retail cashiers, people who work at fast food restaurants, these things are on the decline. And that's because technology is going to replace people in those industries. So that was already occurring. But I think that COVID affected the way we work. It affected the way we went to school and all these types of things. And so that has really affected the job market. And so it's not as dire of a story. People want to hire at that lower level of, you know, kind of wage um, retailers, uh, rest, people in restaurants, all these types of things. And those people just have a lot of better options. And so they're not taking those jobs. And so that's why you're getting $3,000 hiring bonuses on the table and things like that. It's to woo the people into, you know, those jobs. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about the G7 talks and some of the um, outcomes of those talks. And it seems that the global commodities are always the same ones. It's like oil and wheat and I don't know, is gold in there too? Mm-hmm. And so what do you mean by always the same ones? Do you well, mean in terms of what their policies are about? Yeah. And what they want to alter? Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that the problem here is this kind of this intergovernmental political forum. Um, and, Here's here's the concern I have. It is a very econ- it's very economic in nature in this sense. I think that the idea here is that this is a group of people that represent um, the world's largest advanced economies and liberal democracies. And so we look to those. We tend to look to those types of countries 
you know, as great powers, leaders of the world. And so we look to them to set policy, to set precedent, um, and all this t- this type of stuff. But I think my economic insight is just in terms of about being cautious about what they may advocate for or the issues that they take under consideration, things like climate change. It's not that climate change is, is a kind of bad issue or something we shouldn't be worried about. I think as Christians who care about stewardship, we very much should be worried about it. But I, I get worried and skeptical that this group of people knows how to tell the rest of the world what to do. Mm. So I think that, that, that that's why I'm, I'm reluctant to say, let's let them set the agenda because they have certain agendas. I, and I'm not always convinced that those agendas are um, in the, what do I want to say here? And going to advance economic freedom. And I think to me, Economic freedom is the framework for how we think about a better world, a better world, not just because we're all richer, which is great. Being richer, being wealthier is a good thing, but it's that economic freedom solves some of our most pressing pressing issues, including climate change issues regarding energy and fossil fuels and the depletion of resources and pollution and all these types of things. And so I don't hear a lot of that when I hear you know, when those meetings are going on. And so I'm just, this is my personal view, of course, but I'm a little bit skeptical of saying, let's let you guys run the show and tell the rest of the world kind of what to do Mm -hmm. um, and what to focus on and what to produce and what to stop producing and all these types of things. Mm -hmm. Dr. Ann Bradley is my guest. She's the co-editor and author of Counting the Cost, Christian, Christian Perspectives on Capitalism. For the least of these, a biblical answer to poverty and be fruitful and multiply why economics is necessary for making God-pleasing decisions. She received her Ph.D. in economics from George Mason University in 2006, during which time she was a James M. Buchanan scholar, something I will never be accused of. We'll take a break and come back with Anne. If you have a question for her, let me know what it is. Some great questions, 877-933-2484. Dr. Ann Bradley, and Ann, there was um, an article you wrote at the Acton Institute, which is a very smart place, so they only let really smart people in there, and you wrote an article on Bitcoin, and I have to be honest, I know almost nothing about Bitcoin. Well, they asked me to write that article, and I knew just maybe a touch more than almost nothing. All right, good. Uh, And they said, well, the funny part is they they asked me to write a blog post, which is usually about 750 to 850 words on a primer on Bitcoin. And I said, I don't know if I can do that. That seems impossible. Uh, So we kind of made it a little bit longer. But yeah, I mean, it's a fascinating topic. I think it's something that everybody is really interested in learning more about. And so the bottom line is, Bitcoin is is kind of uh, is certainly a leading digital cryptocurrency, um, but it's not the only cryptocurrency, which I mean, is a good thing. What does even that mean? What does even that mean? It's a cryptocurrency. Right, so, 
a cryptocurrency means that it's not physical and it's not um, sanctioned by a government. Okay. So most currencies that we use today, I mean, if you're American, you use dollars, but if you were to go to another country, you would convert your currency into their currency. And that's a very easy thing to do, but it's physical and we call it a fiat currency. So a fiat currency is given its value because of the government decree that's behind it. Now, we could talk about the history of currencies. We won't do that, but there's lots of different ways you can do this. So the United States used to be on the gold standard. And that's why people kind of, I think, are interested in the power of crypto or digital currencies. And so the way Bitcoin works is there basically is a mining process. It's very complicated. The way that it works is you can mine or discover Bitcoins, but there is a fixed supply of Bitcoins, which means that it is going to serve a different function as a currency than a normal government-backed fiat currency. A lot in our previous talks, we've talked about the role of the Fed and the role of the Treasury and things like this. One of the things that's the most important elements of monetary policy is matching money supply to money demand. So that's one of the important jobs of any central bank. They have to figure out what the demand for holding currency is, and they have to adjust the supply of currency accordingly. Now, with something like Bitcoin, which the Bitcoins are mined, someday we will have discovered all of the Bitcoins. This happens through what's called blockchain technology, which is basically an online ledger. It's an accounting system, and this is what keeps it honest. Because you could imagine with a cryptocurrency, we could have people that hack into it. We could have people that lie about you know, how much cryptocurrency. So it's a very sophisticated uh, technological innovation in currency. But just as with any other currency, it only works if people want to hold it. And we're in the infancy stages of cryptocurrencies. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, they are babies. They are brand new. And so I think a lot remains to be learned about how they will be used, how often they will be accepted. So we're seeing more and more vendors. You can pay in Bitcoin, uh, for example. And what I learned in doing this research is that the most, the fastest adoption rates of cryptocurrencies around the world are in underdeveloped economies. And that really, when I learned that, it didn't, it, it made sense to me because in underdeveloped economies, they tend to remain underdeveloped because people can't trust their governments. And so they can't trust their central banks because they're dysfunctional, broken, corrupt, et cetera. And so cryptocurrency, the, the adoption of it in certain regions actually allows people to bypass the currency that they have available to them by their government and allows them a means of exchange. And so, you know, cryptocurrency, I think, remains to be seen in terms of what its value is going to be, how widely used it will be. But I think a lot of people bought Bitcoin thinking this is going to make me rich, right? So it, they, bought, they bought it as an investment rather than as a medium of exchange. And so it's very volatile. It should be very volatile. It's very new. Um, so the volatility is understandable. Um, and so I think there were people who made it really big and then they lost a lot of money. And so people like to watch cryptocurrency markets to see what they're doing. Um, and so if you're just buying it because you think it's a silver bullet to get wealthy, I think that's not a good strategy. 
Um, but if you bought Bitcoin early, you know, um, and sold it before you know, some of the volatility happened, you might have made a lot of money off of it. But I think ultimately what remains to be seen is how will the competition between cryptocurrencies get sorted out? And governments are really aware of this because they don't want you using cryptocurrency because then they can't control the currency. Mm. Right. So they want to they want to control the currency. And so. The Biden administration is researching what a U.S. cryptocurrency would be. China's in on this game because they want they want the power of money. And it's a very kind of it's an important source of power. And so I think that governments are really worried about cryptocurrencies for that reason. OK, and my blood sugar might be a little low right now and I might be close to dinner because I'm having <laughs> trouble absorbing all this. But you've explained it well. But at one point, I thought I heard you say it's a digital currency. And the next thing there are physical objects called bitcoins. Which, where are they hiding? Who, how do you find these? Are you, how are they discovered? Right. So this is this is it is not physical, and this is where I think it gets okay. weird for us. It's not physical. So we mine them through the process of the computer technology. Okay, that's what I thought. Yes. So it's all about. What's going on on this digital shared ledger? There's not an actual Bitcoin. Now, you can have a Bitcoin wallet. That's also digital. It's not the kind you put in your pocket. Okay. So it's online, and there's a Bitcoin wallet, and it will store your Bitcoins. Okay. So it's it's like a wallet, but it's a very hard thing for us to conceptualize. So there's nothing physical about this ever, unless you go and trade in your Bitcoins for cash. And then you get the cash and put the cash in your wallet. Then it becomes physical, right? Okay. Because you can trade the bitcoins for U.S. dollars. All right. That, that help? Yeah, it's very helpful. So, what is the cap? The total cap market on cryptocurrencies right now? How big is it? It is really big. Uh, let's see. I think the total market cap of Bitcoin, which is the most widely used cryptocurrency is like $835 billion. Okay. By the way, I haven't checked the numbers, but at one point within the last month, it was bigger than the Russian ruble, which had a total market cap of like $626 billion. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's obvious. This is So that's kind of a stark example. But the total market cap of Bitcoin is bigger than all the Russian rubles which have tanked in value. Mm -hmm. And so that's important though, right? Because it shows us that, so this is about currency competition. I think that's how we want to frame our thinking around this. This is an alternative to a government backed currency. It's, it operates the same way. It's a medium of exchange. And like I said, there's in this case of Bitcoin, there are 21 million Bitcoins. But the total quantity, you know, it will take, you know, in the next century for all of them to be released. But what this means, not to be too technical, is that the supply curve of Bitcoins is is vertical, if that makes sense. It's vertical, which means it's fixed. Mm-hmm. And that that actually is a problem because when the U.S. government is making decisions about monetary policy, they at least theoretically, they should be saying, okay, this is what money demand is. I need to respond with appropriate changes in money supply. So there's fungibility or flexibility in the supply of money because the Fed can make a decision about what they're going to do to increase or decrease the supply of money. But with Bitcoin, it's fixed. Now, what that does is that it removes it from government control. So that's a big benefit. 
but it also limits it because at, at in the limit, there's only a fixed amount. So it will never be able to be increased. But that is actually part of what makes it valuable, right? It can't ever be inflated is what mm-hmm. I'm trying to say. And that's a good thing. Yeah. That's why people want to hold it. Okay. That is very helpful. Very interesting. And this is really the first time I've had a, a, a discussion on this and any understanding of it. So thank you for taking us there and walking us through it. I hope my questions weren't too naive. No, they were perfect. They okay. were great. It's hard to understand. It's it's hard for an economist to understand. You have to, it's just, you have to walk through each step. What's going on? Why is this being used? You know, it, it's, it's tricky. So yeah. it's not an easy concept. I don't yeah. think. Well, thank you for, um, putting us on our on your schedule today. It's been great having you. Oh, always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much, Anne. Have a great evening with your family. You too. All right. That is our show for today. Thank you for um, spending a part of it with me or all of it with me. I've loved being with you. And if you missed any of it, uh, Guy Talk was the first hour, which was wonderful. And then Rob uh, Reno joined me talking about healing family relationships. And that was a spectacular uh, half hour, and then Dr. Ann Bradley was just my guest now. If you want to go to MyFaithRadio.com, you can check out the Afternoons with Bill show page and hear any of those on a podcast. You can listen whenever you like. Have a great night, and as you lay your head on the pillow, know that God loves you. I do too. Have a, a great night, and I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.